it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Before we begin, I want to make sure everyone knows that my other channel, Somewhere Sinister, is back and we have a ton of episodes coming your way. We hit 80,000 subscribers recently and I'm hoping you guys can help us hit 100,000. If you enjoyed this channel, you'll probably like Somewhere Sinister. We tell interesting stories that either deal with crime or are crime-adjacent and show a more sinister side to the world. Each season, we pick a different area and tell stories from there. The first season was the Pacific Northwest. We're currently on Season 2, the Deep South. And soon, we'll move on to Season 3, the American Southwest. After that, we plan to leave the U.S. and hit some more exotic locations. Check it out and hit subscribe if you like it. Let's get to 100,000 subs. Thanks so much. Now on to the monsters. On Friday, May 12, 1961, three Forest Service employees were returning from a conference. That route took them over the Crooked River Bridge. When one of the men glanced over the edge, he saw two objects lying on the canyon floor below. Initially, he believed they were dolls, much like the idea they might have been mannequins, but we all know it's never a mannequin. Hours later, firefighters would scale that cliff face and make a horrific discovery. The dolls were actually the bodies of two young children, a boy and a girl, and authorities would find a gruesome clue. In the little girl's fist was a clump of hair, her mother's hair. This is Monsters. Janice June Freeman was born in late 1941 or early 1942. The specific details about her birth aren't known. She was 5 foot 3 inches or 160 centimeters tall, weighed less than 120 pounds, and had short dark brown hair that she often wore slicked back. Janice wore traditionally masculine clothes and was often seen in cowboy boots, tight jeans, and a western-style jacket. That coupled with the fact that Janace would bind her breasts so her chest appeared flat, it's not hard to see how she easily passed as a young man. Janace also had multiple tattoos, something very unusual for a woman at the time. Janace's life was difficult from the start. She was one of ten children to her mother and lost her father in a car accident when she was a young girl. When Janace was four years old, her stepfather, Clyde Whitcraft, began sexually assaulting her. 
Clyde, or Red as he was known, also sexually assaulted other girls in the neighborhood, spending some time behind bars because of it. When Janace's mother left Red, she left Janace behind in Central Oregon with her two half-brothers, Ron and Tom Whitcraft. Ron, too, had been sexually abused as a child by an adult woman. He was aware of his father's behavior towards Janace, who he considered his favorite sister, but still held his father in high regard. Janace was interested in other girls from an early age, getting into her first relationship with an older girl when she was 12 years old. Janace was somewhat of a misfit at school, and her behavior resulted in her expulsion and placement into foster care. When she was 14 years old, Janace stole a gun and a car before she robbed a Portland store. After Janace drove home to Central Oregon, she was arrested for armed robbery. Since she was still a minor, Janace was sent to Hillcrest, Oregon's reform school for girls, but not much reform happened while she was there. While at Hillcrest, Janace got into multiple relationships with other girls, so much so that the facility labeled her a sexual deviant. Janace became fast friends with a girl named Letha, who the state was also trying to reform. The pair remained friends after leaving the facility and eventually moved in together. Gertrude May Nunez Jackson was born in 1928 in the Dalles, about 85 miles or 136 kilometers east of Portland, Oregon. She grew up in Portland and eventually Eugene, 110 miles or 177 kilometers south. When she was 16 years old, Gertrude ran away to Seattle, Washington with a soldier after an argument with her sister. Gertrude believed her sister was trying to seduce him and wanted to get away, but her relationship with the soldier didn't last. She ended up marrying a man named Giorgio Nunez, and the pair moved to California, where Giorgio worked as a day laborer. While there, Gertrude worked in local canneries and laundries. Years later, Gertrude left Giorgio and her four-year-old son behind and moved in with a man the couple had met after their move to California. His name was Dempsey Otis Jackson. Gertrude had two children with Dempsey, a boy named Lawrence and a girl named Martha. The siblings were fondly known as Larry and Marty. Dempsey was an African-American man, which meant her children had a darker complexion. She often explained this to strangers by saying they were Portuguese, as interracial relationships were still illegal in some states in the 1950s and 60s, but were still considered taboo in most of them. Gertrude didn't ever divorce Giorgio Nunez, but she considered Dempsey her common-law husband. Dempsey was addicted to drugs, so Gertrude wouldn't stay with him for long periods of time. Instead, she bounced between Oakland, California and Eugene and Portland with the kids. Gertrude and Janace were introduced in April of 1961. Gertrude was living in Eugene and in need of a babysitter. A neighbor of her knew 19-year-old Janace and suggested the two get in touch. For the first week or so, Gertrude was under the impression that Janace was a young man. At the time, Gertrude had an undiagnosed mental illness and was considerably vulnerable. Janace took advantage of that and spent the first week seducing Gertrude before they finally shared a kiss. Two days later, they were intimate on Gertrude's living room floor. Gertrude still didn't know that Janace was a woman, and it was Letha who eventually broke the news. The discovery didn't seem to rattle Gertrude, and she and Janace spent some time in Oakland before heading back to Oregon. 
When Gertrude and Janace first met, Gertrude was sick. She had an infected tumor pressing on her spine, but despite that, she still worked full-time. While she was at work, Janace watched the children. She wasn't the most reliable person, though, nor the best influence on the children, so Gertrude often had to hire someone else. In early May of 1961, Janace let her stepfather and brothers know she would soon be visiting. A few days later, Gertrude, Letha, Janace, Marty, and Larry got into Gertrude's two-door cream-colored Mercury and headed south on their journey from Portland. First, they dropped Letha off at her parents' house in Cottage Grove, just south of Eugene, and then continued on north heading toward Janace's stepfather's house in Central Oregon. Before 6 a.m. on Thursday, May 11th, Gertrude and Janace pulled up to the Crooked River Canyon. Janace was driving, Gertrude was in the passenger seat, and Marty and Larry were asleep in the back seat. There have been multiple versions of the events that happened next. What was consistent was Janace saying that Marty and Larry were standing in the way of her and Gertrude's relationship. Gertrude listened to the different possible ways they could get rid of the children, all of which came from Janace. One of her first suggestions was to leave four-year-old Marty and six-year-old Larry in the caves found near the Oregon-California border. Another option was lighting them on fire, making them harder to identify. As they were driving north, Janace realized that she knew the perfect place. The house she grew up in was not far from Crooked River Canyon, and Janace learned to fish two miles upstream from the bridge that spanned the canyon. When the women arrived at the bridge that morning, Janace drove over the south end of the bridge and reversed the car up to the retaining wall. Both women got out of the vehicle and Janace kissed Gertrude. Gertrude had never seen Crooked River Canyon, so they walked along the bridge and took in the view as the sun rose. It was a spectacular sight. Beyond the waist-high wall lay a 360-foot drop of volcanic rock, beginning to fill with sunlight. Janace told Gertrude they would drive to her stepfather's home once they were done and spend the afternoon fishing afterward. Before returning to the car, the women looked over the bridge for a spot where no ledges would catch a small body. What they did next would be considered the crime of the century. First, it was Larry. One or both of them strangled him, and then his clothes were removed. Larry was then bludgeoned on the head with a tire iron, which was also used to sodomize him. This was to make it look like he had been sexually assaulted. Larry was then hoisted over the wall and thrown into the canyon. Then came Marty. She too was undressed, but unlike Larry, Marty wasn't strangled. The women used the tire iron on Marty to make it look like she had also been sexually assaulted, but unlike Larry, Marty was alive during this act, meaning she was actually sexually assaulted. Horrifyingly, Marty was also still alive when she was thrown over that wall. In a last-ditch attempt to save herself, she reached out to her mother, grabbing a handful of her hair in the process. Marty then fell to her death, living for about a minute before succumbing to her injuries. At around 6 a.m. on May 11th, Janace's brother, Ron, woke up to his sister knocking on the front door. She came in and said she would wash the car, get some rest, and then go fishing. Janace introduced her family to Gertrude, explaining that she was blue because she left her kids in foster care back in Portland. 
Janace's other stepbrother, Tom, helped them clean out the car, pulling out the gas station garbage and using warm, soapy water to wipe down the back seat and the trunk. One of the women was seen taking a bag inside and then burning the contents in the wood stove. After having breakfast, Tom and Ron were off to school. The women went to a local store where Gertrude cashed in a $4 income tax refund. With the money, she bought cigarettes and beer. They had fried fish for dinner that night, which they had caught after an afternoon on the river. Gertrude and Janae spent the night before setting off early the following day. Before leaving, Janae asked Red a question. How could she travel down Highway 97 without going over the Crooked River Bridge? Red suggested a route east on Highway 26 to Prineville. From there, they would drive south and get back to Highway 97, leaving Crooked River Canyon behind them. It seemed that the two women didn't want to be reminded of the horrifying act they had committed the day before. At around 3 p.m. on Friday, May 12th, three Forest Service employees were on their way back from a conference at Timberline Lodge on Mount Hood. They stopped at the bridge and one of the men, Walter H. Meyer Jr., glanced down the rock face when two objects caught his eye. At first, he believed them to be dolls. He called the other guys over and showed them before they decided the shapes looked too large to be dolls. Two men stayed behind while Walter drove to the Deschutes County Sheriff's Office in Terrebonne. A few hours later, volunteer firefighters arrived and descended the brutal cliff face. The following five hours were spent bringing the bodies back up to the bridge. They had found Marty and Larry. The two small bodies were taken to Ronald Tom's funeral home and Dr. George McGreary began the autopsies at 9.30pm that same day. He determined that some of the children's injuries were inflicted before the fall and that a man had not sexually assaulted them. Rather, it was an attempt by the killer to make it appear so. But authorities had no idea who these children were. No parents had called in to report their children missing, and questioning local informants about potential suspects wasn't bringing up any good leads. They took photos of the children at both the canyon and the funeral home to help with the identification. After leaving Central Oregon, Gertrude and Janae stopped in Cottage Grove and picked up Latha. By Saturday morning, they were in Oakland and looking for an apartment to rent. To afford a bigger place, Gertrude sold her car and got $50 for it. They rented a two-bedroom place, one room for Gertrude and one for Latha and Janace. The same day they arrived in Oakland, news of the bodies found at the bottom of the canyon started hitting the papers and the radio. Janace purchased one of the papers that featured the deaths in an article, and that same morning, Red heard the news on the radio. He began putting the pieces together, Janace's unexpected early morning visit, the car being cleaned out, Gertrude's children supposedly being left in foster care, and the request for a route that took them around the bridge. Red went to Ron and Tom immediately to speak to them. Ron recalled knowing instantly that his sister was involved, but they initially believed Gertrude and Janace must have been with a man who committed the murders. Red placed his sons in the car and they drove to the nearby home of a sheriff's deputy. Red told the man the identities of Janace and Gertrude, believing the children to be Gertrude's. He also let the deputy know what make of car the women had been in and where they were headed. 
Red's home was searched, and remnants of children's clothing and the sole of a small shoe were found in the wood stove. State troopers were able to track down a neighbor of Gertrude's, who they picked up and drove to Central Oregon so she could identify the bodies. She confirmed they were Marty and Larry. Back in Oakland, two detectives, Jim Spence and Leonard Fake, heard about the children found at the bottom of the canyon. When more information came through, stating that the women Oregon police were looking for had potentially traveled to Oakland, Jim Spence set his sights on locating these women. In the search for Gertrude and Janace, the investigators found Dempsey. He was described as a drugged-out, unemployed laborer. When shown photos of the dead children, he remarked that they might be his, but his identification wasn't exactly reliable. Two days later, they found Janace and Gertrude, and they were both arrested, along with Letha. Inside the apartment, bloody clothing was found, and when authorities tracked down Gertrude's car, traces of blood were also found in it. It wasn't long before both Janace and Gertrude confessed. Unsurprisingly, they offered different versions of the events. Jefferson County Sheriff S.C. Summerfield drove to California and brought the three women back to Oregon. Janace was placed in the Deschutes County Jail, and Gertrude and Latha were placed in the new jail on the ground floor of the Jefferson County Courthouse. Gertrude and Janace were both indicted by a grand jury for two counts of first-degree murder. Janace pleaded not guilty, and Gertrude pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Latha would eventually be cleared of any involvement once it was confirmed that she had been at her mother's home when the murders occurred. Opening statements for Janace's trial began on Thursday, September 7, 1961. The trial lasted 10 days, and the jury was even driven to Crooked River Bridge to see where the children had been thrown over. Janace was taken along in a patrol car as well. She showed little emotion. Her attorneys tried to change her look to something more feminine. Her tight jeans and jacket were swapped for a dark skirt, white blouse, and sweater. Janace was visibly uncomfortable in that clothing and took frequent cigar breaks. After seven hours of deliberation, Janace Freeman was found guilty of first-degree murder. Since the jury had not asked for leniency, she was sentenced to death. Janace had to have a special cell prepared for her at the Oregon State Penitentiary, as they had never had a woman on death row before. Janace was the first in the state. Gertrude had no trial since she eventually changed her plea to guilty. She was sentenced to life in prison, which many disagree with. They wanted Gertrude, the mother of the victims, to be held responsible in the same way that Janace had been. The decision to not sentence her to death came down to her mental health. Multiple professionals agreed that Janace was the mastermind behind it all and had taken advantage of Gertrude's fragile mental state. This, of course, in no way absolves Gertrude of culpability. After all, she did agree to murder her own children in order to advance her relationship with Janace. Out of the five types of filicide, this would be considered unwanted child filicide, when a parent murders their own child because they're an inconvenience to them. There have been cases of parents killing their children because they were putting a damper on their hard-partying lifestyle. Most people are familiar with the case of Diane Downs, who, like Gertrude, killed her own children over a relationship. Also, in Oregon. Killing your own child to get an insurance payout is in the unwanted child category as well. 
Gertrude might have gotten a lesser sentence due to her not being the mastermind behind the murder, but she got a life sentence because she's still responsible for her own actions and she knew what she was doing at the time was wrong. In the end, Janace wasn't put to death. After multiple appeals that delayed her execution date, and a governor being elected who was against the death penalty, she was released in 1983. It wasn't long, though, before Janace was brought back in for violating her parole when she moved in with a woman who had children. Gertrude served seven years behind bars before she was released. She had multiple psychotic breaks throughout her life and ended up in a psychiatric hospital in Salem, Oregon. She died three years later. Janace died in 2003 while she was back in prison after threatening two people with a knife. A Portland reporter, Paul Hansen, met with both Gertrude and Janace when they were initially behind bars for the murders. He later remarked that Janace Freeman was, quote, the single most frightening human being he had ever encountered. But of course, anytime you talk to the type of monster who's willing to throw children off of a bridge, you probably should be frightened. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.